538 days in this race. 538 days. Oh my god, seriously, what the actual is going on? 538 days. 539 days in this race. Oh, hold on, Mar Maureen, Maureen, hmm? Maureen. The days, days don't tick down. They just keep ticking up. Yeah, yeah, 539. Oh, it's, it's going on, isn't it? It's only going to go on. It just keeps going up. Time moves forward. What if we're here in a thousand years still singing this song? Well, the good news is there's no way that we're living for a thousand years. Oh, yeah? Says who? Welcome to the first episode of Says Who, the podcast that isn't a podcast. It's a coping strategy. I'm Dan Sinker. And I'm Maureen Johnson. On Says Who, we talk about the election of 2016, which has been going on since March 23rd, 2015. And they're telling us, in theory, that it ends November 8th, 2016. There are plenty of podcasts and shows out there that will deliver news and analysis, but we wanted to make something just to deal with how this election is making us feel, because this election just feels different. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time we've been involved in elections. We've made stuff in response to elections before. In 2011, during the Chicago mayoral race, I made in a Twitter account called at Mayor Emanuel, followed an Elseworld version of Rahm Emanuel as he made his way through a surreal, profane version of Chicago. And I met you through my love of Mayor Emanuel. And I remember the massive excitement I had when Mayor Emanuel replied to me on Twitter. And I still think that account was the greatest piece of social media art ever. And in 2008, I made an organization called YA, which stands for Young Adult for Obama, uh, which was for teenagers to talk about and engage with an election that they were too young to vote in. Now together, we're making a podcast for us to filter our feelings about this election and to hopefully help you along as well. We're like your pals sitting a spell on the porch with you. We're like a beautiful commemorative plate from the Franklin Mint. It says who is a limited edition. This podcast is something that we're making as a tiny vessel to try to sail ourselves and you safely to the shores of November 9th. Because we know that the seas of this election season are rough, and the only way we're going to make it across is together. So let's set sail on the good ship says who. Wait, does the Franklin Mint make ships? Because that was all about how it's like a limited edition and they just kind of do plates. I mean, maybe, it, okay, fine. It's a plate with a ship on it. Okay, and like an arrow that just points to the water and it just says, Ocean of Tears. Totally. And like two people standing on the bow, leaning over the edge, kind of figuring out if they might be able to make the drop and looking decidedly queasy. Yeah, and you, you look a little closer and you can see those Franklin Mint artists have depicted you and me and we're really green around the gills and we're looking into the distance. And then zoom out and you see the plate and then you see some wallpaper behind that plate and then you realize there's nothing left on that wall. It's just sort of the final wall in a house that collapsed under the weight of the sheer insanity of this presidential election. So before the rest of that wall falls over, let's get going. So Maureen, I think it's 
pretty safe to say that we've both got some special skills. Like, I definitely don't look it, but I am deceptively fast. Not not in distance or anything like that, but over really short distances, it is it is a thrill to watch. I can, um, one of my better skills is that I do a very, very good impersonation of a seagull that I cannot do for you on this podcast because it will, it will destroy you from the inside. So it's, it's that kind of piercing uh, sound. But we are skilled individuals uh, on many ways, but I think we've established pretty clearly already on this podcast that neither of us possess the skill of knowing what the hell is going on in this election. Uh, So we're lucky to have recruited folks that do to help us both understand it and get through it. And this isn't cable news, obviously. We're not bringing on talking heads to shout at each other, to grill them. We're bringing in people that know a lot about this election and how this whole thing works. And today we're happy to have Anna Marie Cox. She's senior political correspondent for MTV News and contributor to New York Times Magazine. Anna, welcome to the very first episode of Says Who?, Please, for the love of God, help us. Please help us. Please help us. Well, I don't know if I can help, but I can try. But I'm honored to be someone who's considered helpful. Um, this is quite the election. And I think we all need a little bit help of help um, this year. So that's really my, my first question. This is not your first election. How many, how many campaigns have you, have you covered in one way or another at this point? Oh, boy. Um, in one way or another, um, I've probably covered every every campaign since Clinton in 1996 because I've been in journalism in one way or another and I've always written about politics. Um, as a sort of specifically political journalist, um, some people may not know this, but I was actually a music journalist and cultural kind of critic for many for about 10 years and then kind of sideways into politics. Um, but I've been covering politics specifically and almost exclusively since 2004. So 12 years, um, pretty heavily. And then before that, more than your average bear. So I've been doing this a while. So in a, <laughs> so in a more than average bear kind of way, are they... Uh, uh, maybe I blacked out along the way somewhere, but they don't all seem like they are this insane. No, no, I'm glad you asked me for that bit of bio, not because I'm so proud of myself for making it this far in age, although that's also good. Um, This is completely different than anything I've ever been through. Uh, It is never, I have never felt this way about an election And I mean that both in the sense of I have never had the experiences that I've had during this election. Um, I've never had the kind of intensity of voter response. Um, And and that includes actually covering Obama in 08 when people, the kind of intensity that was so positive, right? Like there was this amazing outpouring of just joy among a lot of people. Um, And then I've also never been sort of so terrified about the possible consequences of an election. Uh, I am someone, I was an American history uh, major and I went to graduate school for American history. I am very fond of our system of government and believe that it can stand up to a lot. Um, I don't know what will happen if we elect a demagogue. Um, who sows violence. Um, That's not something the founders 
saw coming. One thing I've been wondering, because I've, as a just a sort of layperson, I've never watched as much political coverage or listened to as much of it, because now I have on constant, on the go, maybe six political podcasts and a couple shows a night. So it's like, I'm consuming at an unbelievable rate. And I can't help but wonder how you guys feel, like what your days are like in this particular election, because it looks intense. It is. And that's, that's sort of what I said about, like, I've never felt this way about an election. Um, is it different on a, on a sort of day-to-day level, though? Yes and no. I mean, I do think that one of the, bat, one of, one of the more difficult things about, about this cycle is how do you cover something that's so insane without going insane yourself? Like, there is something that happens every day that deserves a sort of all the way to 11 coverage, you know, Um, usually something said by Trump uh, or something that he's done. Um, But Clinton stuff, too. But one of the we can get to false equivalency later. But (laughs) but there's one of the issues is like, how do you how do you just modulate your own coverage? How do you modulate your own reactions? Um, I have personal strategies that involve my pets <laughs> and quite honestly, prayer and meditation. Uh, and that is how I handle it because I do think that the news is coming at us fast and furious and that it's not an exaggeration to feel like it's all really important. Um, I mean, there are some things that get blown out of proportion, but there are, there are plenty of things that are happening almost every day that deserve concern. You know, I mean, for me, it's sort of a, it's the challenges to, figure out how to, um, I'm almost, I mean, it's almost impossible to even say what it is. It's like, where do I direct my outrage? How do I call people's attention to the stuff that I think is really, really important, uh, and, and get them away from things that seem trivial, you know? Well, I mean, that's the thing that I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, which is like, um, certainly in in other campaigns there are there are moments where you can't believe that just got said or that this thing just happened or you know in in ways that are absurd and in ways that are really scary or or any point in between but like this one it is it is remarkable to look back even in a week and say oh my god all of this just happened right and so like, yeah, there's a question of of the kind of news judgment there of like, well, Jesus, now we got to jump on this thing. Now we got to jump on this thing. But also it's just it moves so quickly that it feels like we're forgetting half of the things as they as they come come around. So kind of how do you deal with how do you deal with the almost nonstop nature of this while also trying to to jump back and say, hey, let's let's back up. Well, there's like news, how news organizations approach it. And then there's how individual reporters approach it. You know, I I think that news organizations have been really challenged to find the appropriate ways to allocate their resources. Um, And those resources include like front page space, you know, like how much attention do you pay to something? Um, I think the Times has given a master class in false equivalency, actually, (laughs) in terms of how not to do it. Um, They've spent almost as many resources covering the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton's emails as they've spent covering the various, you know, malfeasance on Donald Trump's part. 
as though they were equivalent, as though they were the kinds of two kinds of the same thing, you know, two types of political activity that both deserve the same kind of criticism and coverage. When one of them is kind of a typical tit for tat influence trading, that's not pretty, but probably not illegal. And that should be cause for concern, but isn't, you know, literally isn't against the law. And she's been investigated for it. Whereas like, Donald Trump has a pattern of behavior that has actually, you know, his political favor trading has broken laws and regulations. Um, and, and like I was, you were going to say, like, I can't believe all this happened in one week. This past week with the commander in chief forum, I can't believe all that happened in one 30 minute period. And, <laughs> and it was terrifying. Like the stuff that Trump had to say during that 30 minute interview like if it was any other year and I've been trying to think like we should have a hashtag for like the acronym in any other year, because like in any other year, like the kinds of stuff that he would say, like one thing that he said would be the end of a campaign and it, and it just keeps going. And, you know, you could have asked him about the feeling and how do I handle this and how do people handle this? And I think th what I just said sort of gets to the, the, the quick of it, which is that there's one candidate who keeps saying things that should be disqualifying, who keeps doing things that should be disqualifying, and yet we keep having to cover him. And I don't think we've ever faced that in a, in a candidate. You know, usually when someone says something that's so outrageous or does something that's so obviously illegal, immoral, whatever, like, they're gone pretty soon. Like, we don't have to, like, keep, you don't have to keep covering everything they do. So, I mean, how do you sustain the level of outrage? How do you sustain the level of, you know, attention? I mean, it's a way, it's, I mean, people have said this before, it's kind of genius. Like, you just keep doing this stuff and eventually, like, I don't know. I mean, the people who care, uh, the people who should care don't care. And the people who do care are just tired of caring. So we need to make any other year great again also. <laughs> and we can just keep building longer and longer acronyms to put on bigger and bigger hats. There you go. One of my very favorite uh, quotes from the election actually happened over a year ago now because it was right after um, Trump announced his candidacy. And it was in, I want to say... Business Week, but someone quoted a woman saying, "You, you, his goal is to make America great again. You can tell because it's on his hat." That's a good point. Yeah, I, it's right there, <laughs> it's right on that. You know, that's a yeah. That's it, you can't argue with it. She was like, I felt like as soon as I, I didn't know it at the time, but like that laid out our entire election. You can tell yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's because it's, it's on like his one hat. of those official party inspector tank tops, right? You put it on and you are the official party inspector. Who's going to question that? Right. Yep. There is this one of the things that really and I in this podcast I am I like to think of myself as the useful idiot. Um I'm just I'm just here as a person and a person watching the media and I hear them saying over and over again last week, well, you know, none of this is really starting until after Labor Day and it I don't know what to t how to explain how those words made me feel <laughs> because is it really going to get is there going to be more is there more to have how what what can happen that's more where's the more please tell me it's not true 
Well, traditionally, um, the nation's attention turns to a presidential contest around the first debate. Um, you know, pollsters do ask people how much attention you're paying. And over the past, you know, couple decades, like that number remains kind of low up until right about now. This year has been different because we have a celebrity running and a, you know, outrageous celebrity at that. So I don't know how different things are going to be. I think, I mean, my, my, I don't know if it's good news or bad news for you that I think that that's probably a piece of conventional wisdom, one of the many pieces of conventional wisdom that we can put to the wayside. That's good. Um, another reason we can probably not expect a whole lot of changes is because of the structural difference between the two campaigns, uh, meaning that Hillary Clinton has a campaign structure and Donald Trump doesn't, you know, like he, <laughs> he just doesn't have a get out the vote effort. He doesn't have offices in swing states. He doesn't, unless that happens super, super quickly, like he doesn't have the kind of infrastructure to do the kind of push that most people would be doing. Whereas Hillary Clinton has, not only does she have that infrastructure, she's been doing that kind of push, you know, I mean, she's been running for president for, you know, almost since, you know, Clinton left office, her husband left office. So she's, she, she, I don't see how her campaign is going to change that much either. That's reassuring because in so many ways, this is sort of like the Taco Bell of elections in that there's always something new and more and terrible that they're adding to it. Like, oh, we've made a Cool Ranch Dorito shell and now we're dipping that Cool Ranch Dorito shell in whipped cream and there's just too much. And at the end, you're starting to get sick even just looking at it. And and there's just, again, too many tacos in this And election. it's the same basic five ingredients, just repackaged in different ways and kind of it'll also give you the runs. I don't know. Oh, um, there's just so many ways of looking at the taco aspect of this. So so the the runs part, I definitely am down with and have actively. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to get so personal, but... It's the cross I have to bear. Um, the, the thing that I do wonder about, though, is... Is this really the same five ingredients, right? Like, I mean, even even what you just said, which is, you know, at a certain point, he doesn't have the get out the vote campaign. He doesn't have the the infrastructure that a candidate normally has. But to me, that feels like it's kind of it's it's reverting back to the mean, right, that we all keep wanting this campaign to be, which is a campaign we understand, right? Like there hasn't really been a, a single point in this where he's had any of the things that are normal. Right. Yet as as he is happy to tell you, all he does is win, right? Like so at, at what point do we do we look at the things that we would expect a candidate to normally have, like infrastructure, money, campaign staff, uh, ground game, any of that, and begin to start to say like, oh man, the, the dude has never had any of that. And somehow this just keeps working. Yeah. He's the gordito full of air, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that we're keeping oh, so this metaphor beautiful. going. <laughs> I'm a big fan of um, sustaining metaphors as well. You know, you're correct. Um, and in fact, we can maybe even stretch the metaphor a little bit because what has happened, I think, in this campaign is the media made the gordito for him and he filled it with air. We, and we keep treating it as though it's a campaign shaped thing. Right. Like he doesn't have a campaign, but the media has created a container for him and his words and his actions that is sort of shaped like a campaign because that's the only way we know how to treat it. 
Um, and if it was anyone else, like I, I read a piece in National Journal, I wish I could remember who wrote it at the very beginning of this, when he went down to the border. And the person who was covering it from National Journal, what their takeaway was, was, oh, my God, this is not a campaign. You know, this is just like a guy, an angry man in a hat, like running around saying outrageous things. And the media is treating it as though it was a campaign. And so it kind of looks like a campaign if you watch the media. But if you're up close, you can see that it's not. And I think that's what's happened the entire, you know, past over a year. Um, and if you, if it was anyone else, that's another hashtag, right? If it was anyone else, any other year, <laughs> like he wouldn't get the kind of attention he, he has. Like he would be considered, like you wouldn't put a person who's saying these things on TV if they were just like your drunk uncle, you know, like it's this, it, 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 he would be just a crazy person. I mean, talking about, you know, Ted Cruz's father being involved in the Kennedy assassination, the birtherism, you know, like the, appearing on Alex Jones, you know, I mean, and yet, yes, you're right. Like the media doesn't know any other way to treat it. And so he gets the benefit of being taken seriously and the benefit of being treated as though he has a campaign, even though like, yeah, he's, he has yet to, you know, like manifest those things. I mean, the good news is, the general is not the primary. The good news, and I assume, I guess we're all assuming the the, the right and proper outcome would be for him not to win, um, is that the general is not the primary. It matters, that stuff matters more in the general. Um, there have been reports, documented reports of uh, lots and lots of Latino people registering to vote. Um, there have been reports of, you know, more aggressive interest among uh, young people. Um, I think that we're starting, I think that we're going to see turnout and we're going to see, you know, the, the mechanics of a campaign starting to matter and it's going to be Hillary Clinton that's able to harness those things. And, you know, Trump is relying on you know, he's relying on TV, which has worked for him up until now. And I, I mean, I guess there's a chance it could still work. But I feel like he, I think, <laughs> not to be too crass about it, I feel like America's brown and black people will pull our ass out of the fire. That's what I think. <laughs> if it was up to white people, we'd be lost. Oh, yeah. That's, I feel like that's always true. <laughs> that's that's long bits basically the story of america that's true this will be true in a presidential election which it usually usually not the case so um although they you know that mean it, may, it matters but like i i think that this is we should really like they're always not only is it always the case but it's always underappreciated so um i'm hoping that that there's some kind of change there but uh that's what I, but, but that just sort of get back to the mechanics of these things that, that we are going to see. I think the mechanics of voting starting to, that, that will matter, especially with poor and, you know, otherwise underserved communities turning out to vote. Did you have a favorite, you know, everybody gets to kind of pick a favorite moment of this. Ours, I think, was says who, which is why we called this. But did you have a favorite moment where you're like, this is the moment for me. The taco trucks are my moment or... The tiny hands, beautiful, that's my moment. Do you have a thing that you'll hold close to always when 2016 is but a memory? I mean, there's so many. Yeah, that's, there really um, are. You can collect them all. <laughs> you can have a scrapbook and collect all of your favorite ones. Yeah, Pokemon for politics. Yeah. Um, 
I think that I'm going to go with a positive one since we've yeah. had a, been emphasizing, I think, a bit of the distressing parts of this election, which is the um, Khan family. And I remember watching them and, you know, they weren't, I mean, they may have been on the schedule, but what the guy, what he said wasn't on the schedule. Like there wasn't, it wasn't clear what the content of his presentation was going to be. And it just floored me, um, as I think it did a lot of people. Um, I feel very fortunate to have been able to see it live. And uh, the dignity and grace of that family in both that moment and as was carried onward, thanks to <laughs> the candidate himself, uh, I think was a really powerful thing for, for a lot of people. I mean, I think it showed America at its best, um, also at its worst. Um, but at its best too. And that's like, that's the campaign in a nutshell for me is that in some ways we get to see America at its best. And in some ways we see America at its worst. Like I said, so America, like America at its best is a moment like that. And a moment where you see people rally around that family. And then, you know, and then on the other hand, there's Donald Trump. As, as someone who was there live, is the balloon drop as cool as it looks, especially with those really big (laughs) balloons with the stars on them? (laughs) Um, I was only at the balloon drop for the RNC. Okay. Uh, but I will say that that balloon drop was was one of the most surreal of my, you know, fairly long reporting career because that was the moment where I realized that Trump really was sticking with the Rolling Stones, You Can't Always Get What You Want, mm. as his closing mm-hmm. song. And to play that after that speech, that convention with the balloons dropping... And on top of that, like I was on the floor, it was like actually really right up there. And uh, the Republican, you know, convention, you know, like delegates around me were singing along. You know, I mean, it was so weird. (laughs) Were they a happy bunch? Was it was it a happy floor? What was that? Um, That particular moment, uh, I think they were they were, uh, you know, perhaps not too thoughtfully grooving. Uh, in that moment, they may have had some some happiness because I think they were just being like, oh, it's a song I recognize. Um, <laughs> not thinking too hard about it. But for the most part, uh, that convention was, in, was very downbeat. Um, a lot of resignation, a lot of like, you know, I guess we'll just, you know, take one for the team kind of attitude that, you know, I mean, surprised me a little bit. I have a lot of friends who are conservatives, um, people in my family who are Republican or conservative or libertarian. And, you know, a lot of them have been able to say to me that they're not going to support Trump. They are people who, I mean, I guess I, I, maybe they have good taste or I have good taste. But for some reason, like a lot of the people that I know that are conservative have come around to, to not be able to support Trump. And I, I was surprised at the number of people who, at that convention, who, you know, seemed like perfectly reasonable, principled people uh, who were still going to support someone who I think is, you know, a dangerous madman. And one anecdote that I've shared before, but I'll share it again. So I was at a, a cocktail reception for the Texas delegation who, you know, they sort of rebelled against Cruz. Um, and felt very, a lot of people there had been crew supporters who then became Trump supporters because they wanted to just support the party. Right. And I was asking them about that. And 
we're in a long conversation and eventually like they kept admitting that he had all these problems. Trump had all these problems. And, uh, finally I was like, so you admit like there's like, there's a non-zero chance that he does something crazy in office, right? There's, there's like a non-trivial chance that he does something unconstitutional or dangerous in office. And the people I was talking to were like, well, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so how can you, how can you support him? And, uh, one woman said, well, you know, he's very old. <laughs> it's a oh, very God. stressful job. And I was like, that's your, that's your excuse. Like, that's like, it, anyway, I mean, that's it, grim. That was pretty grim. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I don't know how they, I guess that's how she gets to sleep at night. You know, the woman that said that to me is that she's supporting Donald Trump, even though she admits that he could do something unconstitutional or dangerous because, hey, he might die. Yeah, because now we all know that coughing is a sure sign that your death is immediately around the corner from some terrible illness because coughing is, coughing is the worst thing that can happen. Well, I mean, the, the, the health the health thing kind of loops back to the to the to the media thing which is you know the treating you know essentially unfounded rumor or innuendo as something to devote time to right um and that it seems like over and over there's just this sort of sense on the on the trump side of the fence of Oh, they didn't call us on that. So let's keep riding it. Right. Like um, and and like how do we and and I mean, I know it is late in the game, but how does a person think about approaching breaking that cycle or is it just so built into the institutions that we have on every side that we can't? I mean, I think that this has been a time of reckoning for our media institutions. I think none of them have behaved especially well. Some of them have, I think individuals have done better than others. I think the the rebellion of the Chirons on cable news is one of the most welcome developments of this cycle. I hope that that continues. The idea that you would in a Chiron, for listeners, that's like the, the you know, the text along the bottom of the screen. Uh, that you would run a Chiron fact-checking somebody while they talk. Uh, I think that's welcome. Um, I think that, on the other hand, I think that Jake Tapper and Brian Stetler at CNN have done some really great fact-checking uh, in real time of, of guests. Uh, I think that other networks have as well. I think, you know, CNN, I think it was CNN also that had the um, says who moment. Um, on the other hand, I think that... Uh, this is a structural issue in cable news, which is that they feel like they need to have someone on to articulate the side of whatever, whoever's side. And so you give someone all the authority that comes with being a person on a set in a cable news network, uh, and they get to say things like, well, you know, Hillary's health, medical experts have evaluated it, and they've said, I was actually on CNN once when, when a Trump surrogate was, got to say that, you know, and both the anchor and I jumped in, but she, someone who was just like listening at the gym or whatever, like all that authority that comes with being on television went unchallenged for a moment, right? She got to have that little soundbite out. And I think that that's a real problem. I think, 
And I think that in general, there's sort of a lesser problem on, on in print, which is that they, you know, so-and-so today said, you know, we're just reporting what they said, right? Um, and <laughs> I get, again, some institutions I feel like have done a better job of like being able like in the same sentence, like saying like, or in the same paragraph, this was said by a Trump surrogate and it's not true, you know? Um, but clearly, you know, I mean, the Trump people keep doing it and I don't know how I don't know how you how you truth squat it, especially I'm, I'm really concerned about the debates coming up, too, because we've had, you know, uh, people who are involved with them say, like, it's not going to be our job to fact check or truth squad the people, you know, the candidates as they're talking. And that plays right into the structural issue that we're talking about. Right. Which is that just they, you, they get to just say it, you know, with the authority that comes with being on TV. They get to say it. Yeah. And especially when you know that I actually had to sort of sit and take a breath for a second because um, that's what this election does to you. It makes you just sit silently sometimes for a moment and go, oh, oh, God, 500, 538 days. That's how long this has been going on. We calculated Mm -hmm. 538 days. So I keep trying to figure out a way to. To, to pull us out of the depths of hell that we have arrived <laughs> okay, in here, sorry. but uh, no, it's it, 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 no, we're a, all uh, we're all wallowing in this hell. No, I have actually um, I have another I have a one one last thing maybe we can end on, um, which is a good thing, which is that um, so as a Gen Xer, personally, um, I, and as someone who's not a huge Hillary fan, quite honestly, um, I was always kind of like, oh, I'm not going to look, for, you know, I'm going to vote for her first woman. Great. You know, but, um, eh, you know, I couldn't, I felt like I wasn't going to get excited. I felt like it was going to be kind of like a dutiful vote more than a like, woohoo. And two things have happened. One is the attacks against her have made me more excited to vote for her. Uh, and I think sort of even on a more personal level is that I might get a little emotional here. Um, I realized my mother passed away a couple of years ago. Um, that how much this would mean for my mom and for women of her age. Like, I think to anyone who doesn't think this is a big deal, think about, think about the women you know that are a generation older than you. I think that is when the import and the enormity of what it means to have a female president, like, I think that's when it sort of hit me in the gut. That is, yeah, that's amazing. I think about that a lot with my mom, actually, who is the same age. As uh, Hillary. And um, I'm like, yeah, you know, a woman just like you, you know, you're retiring this year and a woman just like you is running for president. And like how that's something that my mom like couldn't have imagined for herself. Yeah. You know, like and now now it's happening. And now like I can imagine, I mean, you know, not the women who are younger than us can't imagine for themselves happening like this. Like, I just think it's not, that's where, that's where it gets in the gut for me. Like those stories that you may have heard about young black people seeing Obama's inauguration and it hitting home that that could be me someday. Yeah. That's going to happen for girls too now. (laughs) And as much as it sucks for us now with all the things going on, it just means that 10 years from now, it's going to be completely different. Probably. Because a lot of these, you know, will have done hopefully the dirty work of this. Unless we're, unless Trump gets elected and we're all in the camps. So. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We've got eight, we got eight weeks to get through before we get there. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for 
helping us get through this this last 40 minutes and uh, giving us a little bit more uh, context for, for surviving the next eight weeks. Uh, thanks so much, and, and we will see you on the campaign trail. Man, that was a great interview, but things got pretty heavy. I think maybe maybe I should make a fart joke or something. Yeah, you already kind of made one. So. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah, but you know what? It's always darkest before the dawn. We're just starting out. We've just gotten into the subject of this election. So, all right, I'm thinking maybe we can go out this week with something something tasteful. Let's have a tasteful, a tasteful moment for this week. That's a good idea. The most tasteful thing that I think came across the transom this week has to have been the six-foot-tall portrait of Donald Trump that Donald Trump bought with charitable money. Which is elegant in every aspect. And I think, you know what, it's the kind of thing that would turn up in the final round of the old Wheel of Fortune, where after you won money, they had a kind of diorama of objects with price tags on them, and you could pick out the things to buy with your winnings. And they were very classy, like a pair of ceramic panthers. I remember in the summer uh, when I would watch that, and you would get that one uh, where there was like a pair of jet skis, and it was just like, yes, I am getting those jet skis. And when I think about it, if you've got the jet skis, what goes best with jet skis than a six-foot-tall self-portrait of yourself? I say, I say go bigger. What I want is like one of those expanding ones. You know, like how, how like in the Haunted Mansion at Disney World, they have those expanding portraits. Totally. I was just there a few months ago with my family. And, and as the room expands, it keeps showing more and more people kind of stacked underneath the, the, the original painting. Uh, but in this case, I, I can just see it. It's, you know, Trump. And then the room expands a little bit. And he's sitting on the shoulders of Trump again, who's then standing, uh, being held you know, sort of precariously by yet another Donald Trump who's standing on a on a high wire. And instead of there being kind of like a gator underneath ready to eat him, there's Donald Trump again having a swim. I think kids would love that. I think kids kids probably love Trump and they they like the Haunted Mansion. And I think in fact, I'd like to see a Haunted Mansion that was all Trump, like every ghost is Trump. Be like scary. You you go through the the dance sequence and it's all Trump dancing with other Trumps and like even the hatbox ghost the legendary hatbox ghost he pops out and he's he's Trump and those two at the you know there's like I guess it's three at the end and they're all like they're gonna hitch along with you and they're all Trump and it's like oh it's like let's do it's a small world but it's all Trump oh God yeah no no I think I got this I think I got this okay hold on hold on hold on. It's a world of tacos, a world of trucks. It's got tiny hands, and it gives no f***s. That's good. Uh, <laughs> there's so much we all know. This election won't go. Make Mexico great again also. Nailed it. Damn. Nailed it. Nailed it. You did. I, listen, if you're listening to this podcast now, know that you're onto something big. That kind of quality. Uh, that song is going to get stuck in my head all week. That's right. And uh, until next week, that's all for this episode of Says Who. Please join us again next week when maybe we'll sing to you again, but we'll definitely crawl into the murk of this election once again. If you found us through iTunes and like what you hear, please give a review and also tell your friends. And if you have a question or a comment, you can follow us at Says Who Podcast on Twitter 
or find us at sayswhopodcast.com. Our theme music is supplied by the amazing Ted Leo. He's at, at Ted Leo on Twitter. The Says Who logo was designed by the one and only Darth, which is he's at, at Darth on Twitter. Signing off from my basement in Chicago, I'm Dan Sinker. And saying goodbye from a closet in New York, I'm Maureen Johnson. We don't know what the next week will bring, but we'll be here to muddle through it all with you together. Oh yeah? Says who? It's a world of tacos, oh, God, a world stop. of trucks. Stop. Come on. That was a solid offering. Uh...